Hello there, my name is Jonathan Porritt, and I hope that you will join me in what is the second episode of This Climate Business. Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week, I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Well, Jonathan Porritt, thank you for joining us on this climate business and welcome to New Zealand again. Thank you. You gave a talk at the Institute of Directors that I found very interesting. You are predicting some sort of correction, a market correction. What is, what is this bold prediction of yours? Not quite so much a prediction, more a speculation as to the possibility that such a correction may be imminent and in fact come much faster than people imagine is possible. And there's one very simple reason for that. Every single person that we know today has lived in the fossil fuel age. Our lives are dominated by fossil fuels, our brains are corrupted by fossil fuels, our imagination is stunted by fossil fuels. There's no bit of our being, individually or collectively, that hasn't in one way or another been shaped by the very powerful presence of fossil fuels in our lives. So when you hear someone talk about the end of the age of fossil fuels, there's a blank look of complete incomprehension on people's faces as in, don't be silly, that's not going to happen, that's not going to happen. Well, the thing that I was speculating about is, firstly, it is absolutely going to happen for definite, and then the really provocative bit was, it's going to happen much, much faster than people realise. You had a third provocation, which was that uh, it won't be as catastrophic or at least there will be a silver lining to the dark cloud. I think we've got to be absolutely clear about how much pain we can avoid and how much pain is now inevitable. And we have been putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere for so long that we have already destabilized our climate and we will not be able to go back from that. That means that we will see massive dislocation in people's lives. We will see a worsening of the climate-induced disasters of one kind or another, pretty much guaranteed now to have a one-meter sea level rise by the end of the century and possibly as much as two meters. I'm not just saying this for the sake of making anybody listening to this feel really gloomy. I'm just saying this is now our new physical reality and it's not avoidable. What is avoidable is ensuring it doesn't go on getting worse than that. And that's what scientists refer to as the runaway climate change effect. And if that happens, then we're way outside the league of disruption and dislocation. Then we're looking at potential meltdown of what it is that makes human civilization work. We might come back to some of that fun stuff later. This imminent tipping point that you're talking about. Yes, so the only reason why I'm saying, putting all of that up front is that we can't avoid the need to eliminate the use of fossil fuels in our economy if we want to avoid runaway climate change. So this is the sort of non-negotiable imperative that now confronts us. If we're going to avoid that, we've got to get climate change geared, the policy around climate change geared in such a way that we can phase out the use of fossil fuels very fast. Now, that is going to mean some really serious 
economic implications. And what I was, again, speculating about is if we do it in a planned way, then we can avoid economic collapse. We can avoid crashing the global economy. And nobody really wants to see that either at the moment. If we don't do it in a planned way, and the transition happens very fast because people just make decisions on the basis of markets and on the basis of their sense of responsibility for ensuring a reasonably safe life for everybody on this planet, then it will be very disruptive indeed. And mm. there could be a massive collapse as the stocks in oil and gas companies, coal companies, completely collapse. Which is in the trillions in, t in yes, terms of I mean stock the, value. Indeed, the stock value of all the oil and gas companies and the coal companies today is indeed, it's a massively important part of the economy. It generates still huge returns. Most people who haven't thought about where their investment should go, and mm -hmm. that, I'm sorry to say, is the vast majority of people, may not know this, but they are the beneficiaries of some part of that profit generated by those mm. fossil fuel companies. We know that through our KiwiSaver schemes, for instance, which is our, you know, our national retirement scheme, um, you talk about uh, this tipping point coming with early warning signs. There are signs now that you are pointing to where you believe this might be, this stock correction, yeah. this exit out of the fossil fuels is imminent. What are they? It's really important to try and keep alert to these signals out there because they don't come packaged in a form that would speak to everybody in the same way. But when I read, for instance, that Goldman Sachs has now downrated ExxonMobil's stock from a sort of neutral to sell, that says something to me which is really clear because nobody would talk about selling ExxonMobil unless there was some really powerful story going on behind the scenes. This is Goldman Sachs we're talking this about. This is Goldman Sachs. This is not Greenpeace, which has been suggesting people should sell ExxonMobil for a very long time. This is Goldman Sachs. That was followed by a spate of publicity around that, including one of the most uh, influential financial journalists or broadcasters in the USA, who basically said, I'm out of fossil fuels and likened fossil fuels at that stage to tobacco stocks. Mm. And that is the worst thing you can do for anyone working in the oil and gas industry. <laughs> oh my God, they hate that. They really, really hate it. And then Larry Fink, who for me personally is not my favorite man because I think he's a disgraceful hypocrite, um, given that his uh, financial empire um, is still heavily invested, of course, yes. in uh, fossil fuels. BlackRock, $87 billion worth of investments in fossil fuels. In his much um, sort of revered letter to his companies in the first uh, few weeks of this year, he said there is a major reallocation of capital coming down the track. Now, these are just little things, but they happen all over the place. A reallocation out of fossil fuels, to be specific, is, is that he what he's saying? He didn't go that far. But what's the point of mentioning this if there isn't a major reallocation out of fossil fuels? Because it is now the most exposed sector. Mm. And I mean, he represents, I think, six trillion, seven yeah, trillion seven dollars. Trillion, yeah. 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 And people do listen. He may be a hypocrite, but that doesn't stop people listening to him. So I think there are many of these things, and they're happening all the time now. And the thing that I was pointing to is that this is about what um, analysts call sentiment. 
And there's an assumption that capital markets work in these incredibly logical uh, ways and that everything is finely honed following the latest sort of algorithmic approach to what makes the best return at any one time. Actually, markets do work a lot on that, but they also work on crazy emotional sweeps of ideas. The sentiment theory has it that as more and more people gradually work their way to the exit on fossil fuels, that people will suddenly realize that they might be amongst the last left in the invested pack, as it were. Mm. So I was talking about this rather crazy notion that I'm very focused on at the moment. Everybody's heard of FOMO, which is the fear of missing out on something uh -huh. important to generations of consumers. Never worried me terribly much, but I'm much well, more Well, you're clearly not the now. Facebook generation. No, exactly. Um, the thing that really fascinates me now is the fear of missing out on getting out in time. And for analysts and investors, people who are responsible for other people's assets, it is crucial that they make those judgments in the interests of their clients. And if they suddenly think that this entire universe of fossil fuel stocks is at risk, then there is going to be the most unbelievable contagion at that point as people begin to realize that these stocks are not going to generate returns during the predicted period. Is that what they call stranded assets when you are left with something that nobody wants? That is one of the consequences of this. And if you had a, um, a really dramatic sentiment-driven exit from the sector, you would be left with stranded assets in oil and gas companies, coal companies, logistics companies, everybody servicing this huge sector in our economy. You'd be left with stranded assets to the tune of uh, hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars. And that is not a good thing. I, I keep saying to people, we don't want to do it that way. That's not smart. It'll be painful. It'll hurt everybody. If you had a choice, are we going to crash the global economy or do we want to, to render human civilization completely untenable in the future? I'd rather crash the global economy, okay? But I'd prefer to avoid both. It, that all involves investment. So much of the demand for fossil fuels comes from us. It comes from airlines. It comes from people driving cars and eating out of plastic containers and so on. We could go on and on and on. In this scenario, what happens to consumption? Are you saying that these stranded assets are being replaced by other forms of supply? Are there new fuels? Are there, is there a different kind of plastic? Um, what... You have to replace these things. Um, it, what we've learned the hard way is you can't um, persuade billions of people to move towards a more fair, compassionate, sustainable world by forcing them to sacrifice everything they enjoy in life today. That isn't, simply isn't going to work. But nobody uses... Unless it's forced on us, I suppose. But, uh, that's a different story. We can go there if you want, but that is a different story. All right. But nobody loves fossil fuels, per se, apart from a few petrol heads who really do love being in a vehicle where they can smell the emissions and get that sense of excitement about burning hydrocarbons. Okay, there are a few of those, and yep. they are particularly irritating in my view. It's not the fossil fuel itself that people love. It's the power that it brings. It's the mobility it brings. It's the 
electricity it brings, the warmth, the heat, the cooling, it's all of those services that the fossil fuel brings. So if you can get rid of the fossil fuels and provide all the services with different electricity and energy systems, no one's going to care, frankly. It's not the love of the fossil fuel itself. So that's why, for me, the revolution already underway in electrification of ground-based transport, um, cars, vans, buses, etc. Ferries. We just <laughs> ferries, okay. We I'll go with ferries, too. I know you've got an interest in that, Vincent. That's okay. I'll do ferries. Um, it's not that anybody would care at all about being on an electric ferry or in an electric car. In fact, mm. in an electric ferry, they'd probably love it because it's not belching out the bloody diesel fumes at the back. Yeah. So for me, it's all about how do we provide for the services that people love, because nobody wants to give up on mobility, for instance, in a way that doesn't cause any of the current pollution and the huge impact on climate change, etc. And that revolution is happening. Mm. This is Elon Musk's contribution to the world, which is to say there's nothing stopping us going to a 100% electric yes. ground fleet, so ground vehicles, mostly cars, taxis, um, vans, etc., in 10 years' time, if we want to do it. There's literally nothing to stop us now because we've got all the technology we need, mm -hmm. battery technology improving all the time. We could make this transition happen in 10 years rather than 40 years, which is what the oil companies say will be required mm. to get to an all-electric ground-based fleet. You could point, I presume, also to the success of wind in the UK for generating electricity. Yeah, you certainly can. Um, and that's the other thing that I think people don't really understand is the speed with which these renewable energy technologies now are digging into the existing incumbent energy suppliers. In the UK, we don't lead the world in many parts of the renewable energy revolution, by the way, but in the UK, our offshore wind industry is the world's largest offshore wind industry. It is massively important. In engineering terms, it's just been an incredible success. Mm. And when I, I was present when one of the first offshore wind farms was, um, whatever you do, inaugurated, um, turned on, as it were, to start generating the electricity. And at that time, this is about 15 years ago, at that time, the size of an average turbine was about 1.5 megawatts. Now, the new wind farms that are being installed, both on the west coast and the east coast of the UK, we've just seen the announcement of the first 10 megawatt wind turbine. These are vast, absolutely vast bits of engineering, incredibly mm. powerful. When you think about this change, and you've said that, for instance, the ground fleet, we have all the technology we need, we have the sexy cars, so we have fashion on our side. Why doesn't it happen as fast as it needs to happen? The reasons for that, honestly, are depressing. And it doesn't happen as fast as it should happen because the oil and gas companies, the fossil fuel companies, have been buying off politicians for decades. They receive billions of dollars in subsidies still. This is an a sort of unbelievable story that even at the time when the politicians are signing up to decarbonizing our economies as fast as they say they want to, they're still handing out billions and billions of taxpayers' money to these same companies every year. 
And those companies, and I'm, I'm not going to mince my words here, have very successfully corrupted political systems all around the world. And in America, systematically by politicians mm -hmm. through the contributions they make to their political campaigns. And there's no mystery about this. You can actually see this at work in the way those politicians then cast their votes. So we've got real, really problematic incumbency interests going on in this, uh, in this sector. And that has been a huge block on politicians acting in a genuinely objective way to provide for energy services in, a, in an economy which would provide for more of our, our, solve more of our problems than the current mix. If you think about that first scenario you talked about of us being forced into a faster change or forced into a change that yeah. is less managed and more forced, uh, would you put a time horizon on that? Is, there, is the science of climate change now telling us how many decades are involved? Yes, one. And the clarity that comes with that advice from the scientists now is the most important thing that's happened in the climate change debate since 1987, in the run-up to some of the big global processes that led to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change um, in 1992 at the Earth Summit, and the debate started back in 1987. L 2018, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change produced its most authoritative report. It said, we are on track to a temperature increase of three degrees centigrade by the end of the century. That would be an unmitigated disaster. We must therefore do everything we can to ensure that the temperature increase is no more than two degrees by the end of the century, and even better, if we possibly can, we should restrict it to no more than 1.5 degrees. And then they published this report which showed the difference that would happen if we stay below 1.5 or if we stay below two. And although it doesn't sound like much, and for most people a 0.5 degree centigrade change sounds like a kind of tweak on the thermostat, in global terms it's absolutely massive. Mm. And the devastation to natural systems, which would come through a 2 degree centigrade increase rather than a 1.5 degree centigrade increase, is enormous. We've never had such definitive evidence from the scientists before that report. So literally, October 2018 to where we are now, we're still 18 years into understanding the full extent of that advice to politicians. Very clear? That means we've got literally 10 to 15 years to make the changes that now have to be made, mm -hmm. and that's it. Out of all the things then, out, out of the list of priorities in 10 years to achieve, where do you think the biggest impact could be made in emissions reduction? We have to start with the bits that are available to us right now, and that is electrification of those parts of the economy which are currently using fossil fuels. So transport is a particularly important one. But also in northern European countries and North America, the use of gas for heating, for central heating systems, absolutely crucial part of the problem. If we could do that, if we could first of all use renewable energy for all the electricity we need, that's the first thing. Then we get on to electrification of transport and heat in buildings. That gets us a long way down the track. And all of that needs to be underpinned by the bit that always gets left out, which is efficiency. 
every single electron of electricity we use needs to be used as efficiently as possible. So all the buildings we're living in, uh, whether we're talking domestic or retail or factories, it doesn't matter. Every single building has to be super efficient because that way we need less electricity to provide the service that's required mm -hmm. and we can do it with less of an impact. So we have to start easy, make it work, get people used to the idea that this is a completely doable revolution, could happen in a very short period of time, and then get on to some of the harder things. And there are some hard things waiting us down the track, as you can imagine. Give us a sneak peek. Well, I'm here in New Zealand, courtesy of Air New Zealand, who I act as an advisor to. I chair Air New Zealand's International Advisory Panel. I love doing it um, because Air New Zealand is one I would think of about six, if I'm being generous, maybe ten airlines around the world that have realized the the position they're in, which is it's very difficult to substitute their use of jet fuel with anything else at the moment. Very difficult. Most other s systems can find technology breakthroughs to get rid of their dependence on mm -hmm. fossil fuels. You can't get planes in the air at the rate that we like to get them in the air without using a huge amount of jet fuel. Mm. So it is the problematic sector and we have to find solutions to it, which is why I love this work in, in New Zealand with Air New Zealand because they're intent on finding solutions. Your passion is evident. The fact that you are still working so hard. <laughs> Says one of a number of things really. <laughs> <laughs> You met, and I know that you're friends with Sir Rob Fenwick. Mm. Uh, tell me about your friendship with him, and he wrote a beautiful piece in The Listener mm. recently. He did, yeah. Well, I got to know Rob through Air New Zealand. He's been on the advisory panel from the start, um, and he's been the, just the wisest, most sensitive, funny support for that international panel that you can imagine. And I've, I've been involved in the world of corporate sustainability for a long time, working with companies and trying to persuade companies to move further, faster, get on with it, get on with it. You can see what has to happen, just make it happen. And in all the years that I've done that work with companies, I've never met a, a better, um, a more uh, inspiring person working in the field of corporate sustainability than Rob Fennick. I really haven't in any part of the world, whether it's Europe or America, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. um, and he's, he is an astonishing man, astonishing man. He's been a great, great, great friend over a short period of time. We're more or less the same age. Actually, I think I'm, I think I'm actually slightly older than him, even, but somehow we've become brothers in arms in this... Um, story about making sustainability work for people, making them excited about how good our lives would be if we just did things more sustainably. What do you tell your children and grandchildren about the world that they are inheriting? Do, is there a note of optimism in your message? I, I, and I don't mean to be glib uh, because it's serious, but what do you hope for your grandchildren? Um, I've got a new book coming out in June, so I'm doing an early plug here, okay? Plug away. Um, the title of which is Hope in Hell. <laughs> and it is all about the reasons still to be hopeful about how we could all be living really good lives from, for the rest of, of this century. But it's 
premised on one simple thing. We have a solutions agenda, which is available to us. It works, it would do the job, but the thing that is getting in the way of that is the political constraint, the hesitations, the prevarication, the downright cowardice and corruption in our political classes. Sorry to be blunt about it, but that's the truth. Uh, I think you've, you and so, Greta are probably, <laughs> well, you've got nothing to lose now, have you? I'm in awe of what she has done. I think her leadership is astonishing, actually. Mm. I really do. Mm. Um, so when I, uh, I was being we have two daughters, and I talked to them about this book all the way through the writing process and just saying that it's not for lack of solutions that this isn't happening. The solutions are pretty much all there. It's for lack of the kind of political will which should drive things at the speed that we need them to be driven at now. Mm -hmm. And I've tried to explain to them that that means for me personally, I've got to get back into more radical campaigning now. I spent 25 years of my life doing uh, corporate sustainability and I, I'm, uh, I still, I know that companies are gonna be crucial to ensuring this revolution moves as fast as we need it to move, but they're not, going to be the, they're not going to be the force that makes it happen. That can only come from people. And for me, therefore, the contribution from young people today, the school strikes, Greta personally, Extinction Rebellion in the UK and now elsewhere, that radical campaigning is going to be fundamental. That's what hope resides in, which is a sort of odd story for me because it means me going back to my early days in the Green Party and Friends of the Earth and uh, I'm rather looking it's forward to it. It's the circular economy at work, <laughs> isn't it? Yes, I can tell you. Uh, Sir Jonathan Porritt, thank you for joining us on this climate business. Thanks a lot. It's been fun. Thank you.